0: Welcome back to the fourth season of About South. It is incredible that we have been with you now for four years, bringing you this podcast. And we have enjoyed every minute of it. Some of you may have heard through our social media accounts, or just because you know some of us, that this is in fact going to be our farewell season not because we love you any less um but as you might guess podcasts do take a lot of time and mm, not a lot of money but more money than you would think and so in addition to the fact that indeed it costs money out of our pockets to keep The feed up and the website and all of those things and the travel costs, which are all fine. We manage those. We enjoy bringing this content, but it's really a lot of it boils down to time and it's just time now um, for all of us here to move on to new projects and focus on those. We just want to start by sending you a huge thank you for listening, for telling your friends and family to listen, to... Reaching out to us to tell us what you think about the episodes and the content. And for all of you who agreed to be on the show, we're just amazed at the generosity. Lindsay Baker has had to already move on for good reason. She is starting a MFA program this fall, and so she's no longer with us, but... Another wonderful scholar and friend of the show, Jessica Parker, is going to join us for some guest production this season as well as help maintain our website. So we'd like to send Lindsay a big thank you and farewell and send Jessica, um, please, let's give her a big hello. Now, even though this is the last season, let's not get discouraged. It's going to be a great season. We have 16 wonderful episodes lined up, and we're also going to try to bring just a little bit of extra material to the website that we can't fit into the regular shows. Maybe not every week, but um, some weeks we'll have some extra audio clips that you can check out at aboutsouthpodcast.com. And truthfully, uh, this is probably going to be our most political season yet. As you might have noticed, there's a lot going on. And there's just no way that we feel like we can not address that. And because we have never had advertisers, because we are only affiliated with ourselves, we're gonna put it all out there. And we hope that you enjoy thinking about these difficult topics with us. Now that doesn't mean, I mean, we're still gonna laugh. And as some of you have pointed out, yes, my sound engineering, is not skilled enough to keep the levels when all of us laugh at the same time, all the time. But, uh, you know, I know how to do a lot of things. That's one I'm still working on. Maybe after four years, I should have been better, but uh, I haven't. So there you go. We're bringing you the first of several episodes that I recorded while I was on the other side of the Atlantic in northern England and in Denmark. And today we are so happy to have Gavin Lennon with us on the show. He is from Ireland, but he lives and works in the South of England. But he was generous enough to make his way to the North of England in Newcastle. And if you're not sure about these distinctions, we're gonna talk about this a lot this episode, to sit down and talk to us about my complete disorientation with UK and Irish regionalism and what is it like to talk and think about the south of the united states in the uk and ireland we also talk about the uk's current national embarrassment brexit and how that fits into some of the conservative discourse that we see resonating across the us so without further ado for the last first time. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. are a member of the American Studies Department at Christchurch Canterbury in the U.K. You grew up in rural Ireland. Yes, I did. And you came to be interested in the U.S. South as part of your American Studies focus. So just tell us a little bit about your work. And then I think the obvious question for not all of our listeners, but some of them would be, how does someone who grows up in Ireland become interested in Southern Studies?
1: I think the kind of personal... uh, part of that question is the way that I think a lot of people get interested in the South and Southern Studies, through music, through literature. I kind of looked around one day and realised I was listening to blues and jazz and country music and reading Carson McCullers and William Faulkner and Ralph Ellison, who's not quote unquote Southern, but writes about the South. And then it seemed like a fairly natural step to self-identify as a Southernist, uh, kind of intellectually and academically. But really it's when I started my PhD. So I did my um, undergraduate and master's in University College Dublin, moved to Nottingham for the PhD and that's where I really started thinking of myself as doing Southern Studies. And my PhD which is going to be my first book which is coming out next July or June. Hopefully. Oh
0: congratulations! Thank
1: you very much, uh, is about small towns and what I think interested me in American literature generally is that The U.S. is really good at telling stories about itself, you know, the land of the free and the home of the brave, you can be everything you want to be here, equality, all those lovely things, often masking some very not nice counter narratives. So American writers get really, really good at questioning those narratives, at developing novels and poetry and plays that... So oh, you that's what you're telling about yourself great well let's have a look at this instead and then when you look at the u.s south i feel like all those narratives are still there but compounded by a whole different set of narratives about the lost cause about racial integrity in quotation marks about um strict differences between different types of people and again as uh I said I grew up in a small town in rural Ireland just south of the border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland and so when I hear this story about how small towns are such great places to be, they're nice and comfortable, everybody knows you, you can find your way, you don't get lost. It was really intuitive to me that, you know, that's not always a good thing, you know everybody knows you. It's impossible to kind of lose yourself to to escape. And so the kind of coercive elements of the small town in the U.S. and in U.S. literature, but especially in segregated and racially designed small towns in the U.S. South, kind of made sense to me in a way that I wanted to do some more work with.
0: I I completely hear what you're saying, that growing up, in a small rural town and then seeing this analog in the US, it makes you think about, is there some kind of commonality here or some shared sense of identity? I do want to ask you about this. I was planning for my trip to Newcastle Mm -hmm. and I saw this, let me pull it up. Um, I saw this picture and we'll look at it here that says Northern England and it's got a little two guys hiking And it's got a little map, I guess, of the UK and Ireland. And it says, quote, this is in quotes, quote, up north, as anyone south of the Midlands calls it, has a distinct feel from, quote, down south. And this says they're hiking in the Lake District in northern England, which I guess people up here would say that's not really, even the Lake District is suspiciously not north.
1: Yeah, compared to Newcastle.
0: Yeah, Newcastle considers itself the north. And everything I'm doing right now is inflected by Game of Thrones. Yeah. Like, I'm like, oh, this is the Starks in Scotland. and The Wildlings. Is that basically right? Kind
1: of. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. And Hadrian's Wall is like running through Newcastle.
0: Yeah. It's the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I mean, I know it's not as simple as
1: that. No, of course not. (laughs) But, yeah.
0: Um. So, this picture puzzles me. Okay. So, up north where we are in Newcastle, Mm. are they saying it's like... Down south, US. What is what is happening here?
1: Well, I, I feel like they're not really saying much of anything. It's, it's kind of it's just a statement. It's just the north is different from the south. What that has to do with? Oh, I it think. has
0: a distinct feel. Right. Different from. Yeah. Not from. Down yeah. south. Yeah. <laughs> okay. See, I was really weird.
1: Oh, you were thinking like. It's an issue of perspective.
0: Yeah. Because
1: I think it is that, too.
0: Okay, yeah. Parse this for us.
1: Yeah. Okay. But I also think that this statement doesn't identify, and I've got lots of Northern friends, and I do hope to still have lots of Northern friends after this airs, but there's also no room there for self-identification. I know that people from the North identify as being from up North, in the same way that, you know, the idea of the U.S. South is this great container of that's where all the bad stuff lives for US Northerners. But Southerners identify very strongly in some cases as Southerners. I'm from the South, sometimes a little bit defensively, sometimes in really productive and interesting ways. Um, So this is kind of shifting the blame. It's like those bloody Southerners down south of the Midlands. They don't know what they're talking about. But we're left to kind of fill in the gaps. So there's a distinct feel Apparently, that has something to do with walking on a mountainside. What that has to do with having a map of Britain and Ireland isn't really clear. But the idea that there is a difference here is marketable and is something that you might want to be a part of in some way or another.
0: Yeah, okay, so, because these guys are hiking, yeah, it's like nature, It's, it's exceptionalism depending upon one's position... That everyone can feel. every It appeals to everyone and no one.
1: Yeah. Okay. But it's also very consciously in this uh, kind of give me your money, please. You know, (laughs) exceptionalism (laughs) as advertising. Oh,
0: yeah. That's what it always is, right? Oh, of course. Yeah. Okay. So what's funny is the way that I read this is I thought they were saying that there was something about Northern England had something in common with the Southern U.S. I was reading it from like to be from yeah not from as different from right because even that verbiage is or the way they use a distinct feel they mean different from down south i read it as a distinct feel
1: coming from yeah
0: down south yeah Like, and I thought, why are they referencing the U.S.? Like, is this aimed towards me? Like, do they know my internet address is in Atlanta? (laughs) (laughs) But that would be insane. Oh,
1: I mean, only a little bit. I mean, they're totally capable of doing that. But but it is interesting that these northern and southern, on one hand, you know, they're directions. There are directions in every country in the world, and there are, you know, divisions east, west, north, and south in every country, but that northern-southern paradigm really does have such a kind of grounding in the US that it makes sense to kind of read other uh, geographical differences in those lines.
0: So you have these students in your class. I think that it, not my academic self, but maybe myself, 20 years ago, okay. um, when I was an undergrad. I guess I wouldn't have ever thought that people in the UK or Ireland had thought about the US South at all. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I knew like, oh, maybe everyone was involved like, with enslavement in the cotton mm-hmm. economy, mm-hmm. but it would have never occurred to me that there would be some young person in Ireland yeah. or the UK having any sense of what the yeah. South was. D- does that mm. sound, you know, like, why would anyone think about us? Yeah. It, it, like, I sound a bit like uh, Quentin's roommate. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but, yeah.
0: so how does, do people in the UK have a sense of someone being from down South? I mean, the only thing I've encountered here in my limited time, and this happens to me quite a bit when I travel, is people don't, I clearly have an American accent. Yeah. But when my southern accent confuses sometimes confuses people about what yeah. exactly is happening mm-hmm. there um so yeah how do people here think about the south
1: yeah i think there are kind of at least two different things going on there one is kind of inheriting the southern exceptionalism whole scale there is a sense that the south is where all the nasty bits live that's you know monoculturally conservative, white racist, intellectually stulted. uh, um, All the problems of America are Southern, and it can be easy to be sneering with that. But the other side is that when people in the UK and Ireland are kind of consuming and taking in American culture, and obviously American culture is really pervasive in film and music and literature, the distinction kind of comes later it's all American first and this is where we get back to um, the issue of music you know people are listening to Britney Spears or Elvis or uh, Lead Belly or whatever or REM even and taking it in as American music and in doing that then getting the kind of Differences between the north and the south, getting what it means to be southern as opposed to be to being um, northern and kind of the identification with that. But there's also, I think, kind of in contrast to the snaring side, which is there everywhere. Um, there's a very strong sense of solidarity or there can be in the best of ways there can be an understanding that yes the usf has all of these negative things all of these this history of violence and, and repression but it also has such a vibrant and productive history of resistance of um cultural production so again i was walking around newcastle yesterday and uh saw a plaque uh, for where Frederick Douglass spent some time while he was buying his freedom. Uh, one of my favourite pieces of public art in the world is a mural in Belfast uh, depicting Frederick Douglass and other African-American leaders with this kind of sense of solidarity with anti-colonial movements in Ireland. Mm. So And of course, uh, I know Brian Ward is going to be talking about Martin Luther King in Newcastle. There's a very strong civil rights um, History uh, in this part of the world as well. And so there's a kind of very useful, productive, and helpful um, import from the US uh, that can happen here. Uh, You know, something else that tends not to be talked about too frequently is the kind of one of the other civil rights movements, which is in uh, the six counties of uh, Northern Ireland uh, during the 70s and 80s. kind of guaranteeing rights for all citizens um, of the island and of Northern Ireland. Um, And that is very self-consciously being influenced by the civil rights movement of the South and the rest of the U.S.
0: I was at Warkworth Castle, which is that ruined medieval castle. And, you know, I was talking to someone back home last night and... He said, oh, like a lot of castles. And I'm like, God, they're everywhere. And I said, but I think they're everywhere because, you know, uh, the Normans and whatever British identity is coalescing yeah. around that time, they're very anxious about the Scottish So because these yeah. aren't just houses, they're military yeah. forts.
1: And the Romans as well. Even, yeah, and the Romans, right? That, yeah.
0: Everyone's like, there's this huge presence here, mm-hmm. like ostentatious presence yeah. because they're worried about, quote unquote, Scottish invaders. Yeah. But that seems weird because I'm like, but they probably just considered this their land. Yeah. Like, they're not invading.
1: Yeah. (laughs) They're
0: like, we were here.
1: How dare you invade this place? That That you've lived for
0: (laughs) 10,000 years. But there were these two little boys playing at the castle. And they were, because I've noticed some odd uh, Scottish it seems like in some of the historical plaques, Scottish are yeah. really demonized, but mm-hmm. then they're also heavily romanticized, yeah. which seems very similar to indigenous people in yeah. the U.S. Yeah. Um, but there were these two little boys playing with swords, mm-hmm. and they had on their little squire aprons or yeah. something. And they were like, I'll kill you, Scotland. <laughs> Die, Scotland. And they were fighting each other, yeah. and they were pretending to kill and fight the Scottish. Yeah. Which makes sense. They've probably been on the tour, and this was all about Scottish invaders, and they go by their swords, and they're trying to put down... They were basically... The gist of their dialogue was they were putting down the Scottish Rebellion.
1: Yeah.
0: And I imagine there's a similar colonial thing happening with the Irish. Yeah. So, on the one hand... I can see where yeah this Irish and Scottish mm-hmm. like really maps onto
1: yeah
0: um, issues of civil rights and post colonialism. Mm-hmm. The flip side is there's also, as you're well aware, this identification of white people in the U.S. South yes. that they are quote unquote Scotch Irish, yeah. and maybe we can talk about the problems of that term. Yes, we
1: certainly can. There are more than a few. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and. Um, but this sense that somehow people, white people in the U.S. South are either identified that they're defended from this, like, pure Anglo-Saxonism, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: or they're descended from this kind of rebellious mm-hmm. Scottish slash Irish, yeah. which doesn't make sense, uh, totally.
1: Yeah. I would even say and/or. and there or. And or. There seems to be a kind of having your cake and eating it, too. I'm okay, yes. kind of You know, it's very much...
0: I'm oppressed
1: and I'm no more. And I mean, that's what whiteness is. I mean, whiteness is a very real thing that can be very violent and that influences all sorts of lives. But it's also a fantasy. It's also, you know, you get to decide which superpowers you have because it's a story you completely make up by yourself. Um, And so to get back to the kind of... uh, Scottish, you're the Scottish bad guys, I'm the English good guys stuff. I'm reminded, and this is by no means my area of specialism, but reading old English uh, literature at university, there would be kind of descriptions of battles, and it would be, you know, 300 English people, 300 Angles died, and some Welsh. And, you know, and there is a very clear kind of linguistic representation of people, people being... English, well, proto English, Danish, whatever. Uh, And then some other kind of category, which kind of aren't people, are Welches (laughs) or Scottishes or Irishes. Um, And so you have that kind of baked in and it just kind of propagates itself then. And then there's, uh, you know, a tour that kind of builds on it or there's a film on Netflix that kind of reiterates that kind of thing. The. One of my very many problems with kind of Scotch-Irish or Ulster-Scots identity in the US and the US South especially is exactly that kind of pick and mix. I'm going to choose bits of what works. So there's, with Scots-Irish or Ulster-Scots, there is a sense of Irishness is the kind of whiteness I want to be. It's rebellious and strong and somehow kind of naturally of the earth. Uh, But I don't want to be the yucky Catholic kind of Irish. I want to distance myself from that because that just seems a bit gross. So I'm going to be Protestant Irish. So I can still have that kind of noble English uh, historical kind of presence, but don't have to contend with any of the kind of messiness. Um, And also a a big kind of pet peeve of mine in the phrase Ulster Scots is, uh, is... a really common misunderstanding of what the word Ulster means. It's usually used as a synecdoche for Northern Ireland, um, especially uh, among Unionists and Loyalists in Northern Ireland. We're in Ulster, and I am from County Cavan, which is in the province of Ulster historically, in the northern part of the of the island of Ireland, but um, in south of the border with Northern Ireland. So there's just a kind of flattening of historical difficulty and specificity that happens whenever there's that kind of identification.
0: Yeah, it usually seems to be some sort of catch-all for, I'm a special kind of white person. Yes. In the South.
1: Yeah, but With- absolutely white. It, it's also kind of beyond reproach in terms of whiteness, which of course we know is is a completely modern thing. Uh, Noel Ignatieff and many other people writing about how Irish people in America and Irish Americans kind of fought hard for the categorization of white uh, in the 19th century and later. So it's kind of being used as a, I'm Irish, so I'm good, I'm safe, there's no uh, kind of um, concern there in terms of the authenticity or integrity of my whiteness. Um, But that again kind of completely overlooks all the kind of uh, difficult histories that's it a- yeah
0: because it also allows people then to float free it's a bit it's a bit of Mel Gibson
1: yeah
0: so it's like I I can be completely non-specific mm-hmm. about provenance yeah. of Scotland or Ireland or some vague or
1: Scotland Ireland England bits of France <laughs> yeah. whatever it is I need like, yeah
0: melded together um but I can watch Braveheart yeah And like, as a white person in the South, identify with this noble sense of rebellion, which is not what's happening in the US Civil War. Yeah. Then I can watch Mel Gibson in Mm -hmm. The Patriot. Yeah. And also feel this noble sense of like rebellion against the national government, or again, it being England.
1: And then you can watch Mel Gibson on a dash cam and somehow do the mental acrobatics that that's not the kind of fantasy you're interested in. (laughs) Exactly. It's
0: really, I mean, we're just kind of hammering out one of Don Pease's arguments. But I think that he gets it a little bit wrong. I think he does, too. Yeah. Uh, But it definitely has something to do with, yeah, this fantasy. But it's of specialness. But also one that still vaguely has the self-righteousness of oppressed.
1: Yeah.
0: Right? Yeah. Is Is that fair? Absolutely. Okay. Now then, what happens with So... There's something separate happening with people who are like Anglo-Saxon stock. Yeah, that's not quite the same as people who want to identify as mm-hmm. this Ulster Scots or Scotch Irish. Yeah. What's happening there?
1: I think there? I think that kind of leads to again the kind of big house syndrome, the idea that uh, of a kind of carte blanche to be superior and to uh, take over the land from indigenous people to uh, enslave people. That there's a kind of Perhaps putting too strong a point on it, but that there's uh, again that sense of nobility um, that is tempered by the kind of rebelliousness. Uh, But again, it's just waving a huge flag saying white, white, white. You know, it's still again kind of um, uh, being beyond reproach in terms of racial identity.
0: I know you're not from this part of the world. (laughs) But you may have more experience with what all of this means. So since I've been here, there has been a lot. The idea of this kind of like Geordie. Yeah. I don't want to say exceptionalism because I'm not sure if that's the right word. But Geordie specialness. Yeah. Depending upon ref, who you're talking to. Yeah. So um, yesterday I was on a puffin cruise mm-hmm. to see puffins obviously saw them it was amazing and when i first got there it was just me and two other gentlemen one guy um had a very thick geordie accent i mean i really had to pay attention he was so nice he goes on this cruise every week and he was just a beautiful person Mm. um but perhaps maybe i'm learning here perhaps people would say he he had All the trappings would be a relatively common person from the north. Yeah. Okay. Then there was another guy there who spoke very crisp, clear, television, British English sounding, who was a, um, also very nice, but a professor at Oxford. Okay. Um, not in our field, so Mm -hmm. I doubt he'll ever hear this. (laughs) (laughs) He, he? I could tell that as we... I was talking to both of them. Now, I was certainly invested in my Geordie friend who goes on the puffing Cruise every week. Yeah. That seems like the man with the most knowledge. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: If I'm going on a puffing Cruise, this dude has done it. Yeah. Like, I'm going to listen to what he has to say. And I could tell that the man from Oxford was not particularly interested in engaging in a conversation or listening to him. Right. And kind of seemed like, to me, he wanted me a little bit on his side
1: you're with me exactly we're, Yeah, we're not like yeah. him
0: and i thought well little do you know yeah You know. And so i was kind of puzzled and then as we were getting on the boat it was a bit it was a wonderful cruise but i was it would have never happened in the us this way that like there was no safety demonstration there was no discussion of like like here's what we're going to do as we sail out into the north sea if yeah. the boat goes down like it was kind of like we'll, we'll
1: figure Get it on. out we'll, yeah we'll have a great time
0: and um, the guy from Oxford leaned in and said to me, "This seems like a bit of a Geordie organizational affair." Right. And I was like, "Okay, that doesn't sound like a compliment." Yeah. And so I realized that there was something going on here about region, yeah, r- class,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and sort of <sighs> haphazardness or this sense that like, mm, ugh. Like, oh, these people in this part of the world don't really have it together or something. Can you help me understand what's happening here?
1: I can try to, partly because this is something that I kind of had to learn also as an adult moving from Ireland where, you know, people started asking me what school I went to. It's like, I don't know, man, a little rural comprehensive school in Ireland. Why does that matter? But to some people, certainly not to many or even most, that kind of stuff really does matter. You know, what... uh, provenance do you have? Where did do you grow up? Um, what claim do you have on various different signifiers of class? And I think the kind of stereotype of Geordie, as all stereotypes of certainly stereotypes of Southerness, can just be a catch-all for whatever the dude from Oxford, and I'm using dude from Oxford metaphorically as well yeah, as right, literally, yeah. wants to defer, wants to get rid of. Um, a very maybe unexpected US Newcastle analogue is a few years ago there was a TV show called Geordie Shore. Oh, I've
0: heard of it, yeah. yeah.
1: Which is kind of a, an adaptation of Jersey Shore and this again idea of all the kind of vilification of the people in Jersey Shore as being working class, overly concerned with their looks, um, drinking too much, whatever it is, um, shining that same light in Newcastle. And there's a sense of kind of sneering with that, but there's also a sense of kind of superiority. Um, Geordies don't have their act together, they don't know what they're doing. Ha ha, we're down south, much more um, together and much more sophisticated.
0: Because it's just like access to that central, London is that central seat of power. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the national for England is really in London.
1: I mean, yes and no, I mean, oh, certainly, right. there have been huge amounts of work done in places like Newcastle, Liverpool, Manchester, where there is just this hugely rich vein of cultural identity of um intellectual identity, and so much work has been done in highlighting that mm-hmm. and, and certainly. Well, I was about to say, if we're thinking about what makes for the real England, it's not just in London, it's not just in Manchester, and then I realise, well, that's exactly what we talk about in Southern Studies. Exactly. Um, what's the real America? And the answer is, it's a little bit of this, it's a little bit of that, and it's a lot about what matters in terms of identification, what matters in terms of, well, I am this, I am not that. Um, but, yeah, uh, class is this kind of deeply baked in, feature of life in the UK, which isn't to say, obviously, that um, racism, xenophobia, uh, sexism, misogyny are not, you know, equally important, but class just works differently alongside and an intersection with those issues than it does in my limited experience in the US and in the US South.
0: Right. I now have one more question. Excellent. Okay. So, I went to a reading while I was here Mm -hmm. for the new anthology, Common People. Cool. That, I don't know if you've heard about it, I guess it's one of the first literature anthologies in the UK that is entirely made up of commoners.
1: Right. Of kind of working class people. Yes. Yeah.
0: Which I had to look up. I was like, wait, what's that technical definition? Right. Right, someone who's not nobility, not descended from any nobility or clergy. Yeah.
1: But it's also... uh, you know, it's an it's an adjective as well. In, in in the same way, it's not so much anymore that kind of literal, you're a lord, you're a lady, you're a commoner. It's, you're common means something very, very bad. So I'm sure that the Oxford jackass uh, that you're on the uh, tour with would have called the Geordie gentleman common. Uh, yeah. To mean, not just literally not nobility, but like, uncouth and unrefined and nasty and unpleasant.
0: Okay. Yeah. So it's never, so when the anthology, the people saying this sort of reclaiming of common is like, we're reclaiming this, but you're not going to use it pejoratively against us. Got it. Okay. So, um, and it includes white UK and non-white UK. So it also has immigrant, but who also really strongly identify as working class and I think largely born and raised in the UK. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was the celebration of common people. And the reading was incredible. Mm. One of the writers, um, immigrant family, but born and raised in Manchester. On the way there, she had the reading started late and she shared this publicly. So I don't think I'm oversharing Mm -hmm. someone else's Um, on the way there. She was actually uh, verbally assaulted by a man on the train telling her to go back where she came from no. so this very anti-immigrant yeah. xenophobic attitude and she she said you know well where i came from is manchester yeah so i yeah <laughs> i will be returning getting there getting a there yeah. week.
1: Yeah.
0: um and it seemed to me to parallel this really similar tension in the u.s I imagine the man who was verbally assaulting her was also would have identified or been identified as common. And I realize I'm making kind of an assumption here, but this, this precipice that white working class identity Mm. teeters on between seeing solidarity and being very unified around gender, race and class and intersectionality. Mm -hmm. And then this other side of the precipice where, white working class is seduced into this very racist xenophobic place because they're worried about some sort of protectionism of what claim they have and i don't think it's a stretch to say and i'm certainly not the first to say it that this this brexit moment in the uk and the deep conservatism that's gripping the u.s right now Mm -hmm. seem to be born of a similar tension yeah how do you see that in the uk when mm. you think about these ideas of race and Absolutely. class
1: i think born of a similar tension and expressed in the same kinds of violent verbally or otherwise ways against people who phenomenologically are, are quote-unquote different um and so as well as Common People, which I'm going to check out, there's a great collection of essays called The Good Immigrant, which came out in the UK in This 2016.
0: was uh, genealogically attached yes. to that. So yeah. The Good Immigrant came out, yeah. and uh, then this group, they sort right. of said, oh, you know, we've never done this either.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, well, it's a great book. And what's really good about that is it came out in the UK, and then there's an American equivalent that came out la- last year, I think, uh, The Good Immigrant US, which is again again about different types of migrants. The US widen on mine. Um, But absolutely kind of lies about racial purity are at the center. And something else that we haven't really talked about, where I live in the south of England, um, which has a whole bunch of really lovely people and very good people and all the rest of it, but is also uh, kind of Brexit heartland. So the Members of the European Parliament elections are coming up. And in my constituency in the southeast, there is one of the guys running for it is this piece of human toilet paper who's one of the architects um, of Brexit. Um, and so there's a lot of anger that is justifiable. Anger about not being... Uh, being poorly treated as working class people, um, but instead of pointing it at the Tory government, at conservatism, at you know all these structures that we know are built to harm uh, poor and working class people, they find somewhere else. And this is another geographical thing. Part of why it is so vehement, so strong in Kent is because of the British Channel, is because of uh, perceived and actual closeness to the continent, which isn't only a fear of croissants and blue cheese, you know, it's not just that French and German culture is going to be uh, coming through, but there's this kind of nonsense myth that non-white and bad people uh, are going to be making their way into infest England from this point in the south. And in some political rhetoric in the UK, that is quite obviously, you know, there are no dog whistles there, it's just saying this is why we are anxious. But absolutely that is feeding on the atmosphere in the US, where again there are no dog whistles. It's just a case of uh Mexicans are coming here to do all sorts of heinous terrible things. Which again completely um overwrites an entire history of Chicana and Chicano activism, of the very shifting nature of borders in the U in North America and in Europe. Um the politics of indigeneity that feed into that and just kind of like, okay, we've got lots of anxiety, lots of anger, not really sure where to point it. Oh, thank goodness, here's somebody telling me who to point it at. Um, And it's terrifying and it's worrying and it's tragic. and, um, And I think it's one of very many ways that this kind of deeply embedded class structure in the UK is just continuing to kind of hurt people and and to cause really bad scenarios <laughs>
0: our show this week. Welcome back to the fourth season. Do not despair. Just because this is our farewell season does not mean that we're not bringing you 16 packed episodes. Additionally, you can go to our website this week. And as always, we always have uh, written content and pictures there about each episode. But we're also going to have a little extra sound clip this week where Gavin talks some more about his new book. And it's going to be fascinating and it's going to be out next summer and so we hope that you go ahead and uh, think about saving your pennies for that one now. About South is brought to you from the historic west end of Atlanta, Georgia. Kelly Vines and Ajwa Danso are my co-producers and Jessica Parker joins us this season as a new assistant producer. Our music is by Brian Horton. You can find his music at brianhorton.com, and you can find us at aboutsouthpodcast.com. You can also reach us on Twitter and Instagram at aboutsouthpod, and we have a Patreon if you'd like to help out uh, with this last year of bills. We'd really appreciate it. We'll be back next week talking to Brian Ward, also in Newcastle, about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1967 visit to the city and how it fits into the abolitionist history of Northern England and how that's been traditionally connected to the U.S. South. We'll see you then.